You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Our next reader probably <laughs> needs no introduction. She's won every major award in science fiction, plus the, um, the I think, the Shirley Jackson Award and a Penn Faulkner, I think, and has uh, in has succeeded in mainstream to hitting the New York Times bestseller list and having a, um, a, a feature. Um, major motion picture, as they say, made from one of her books called The Jane Austen Book Club. And now uh, she has a new book of short stories. I think she's in the process of trying to claw her way back into science fiction. And I'm sure we all <laughs> wish her the best here at Georgetown. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm feeling very short back there, so I think this will put some inches on me. Um, I was initially very relieved to hear that you were not going to have music and song and slideshows because the last time I read with somebody, they did. And well, I do have a show that does that. And I thought that would be very hard to follow, but my initial relief um, has dissipated now that I have to follow it brain-eating story. I, I would have been better off with the music, I think. I'm going to read a, a historical story. I'm at an awkward point with my eyes where there, nothing quite works. Um, it it uh, is one of two stories in the book that um, involves in some way uh, the Lincoln assassination. And um, I think everybody certainly has heard of John Wilkes Booth, and and many of you perhaps, but maybe not all of you, have heard of his older brother Edwin Booth, who at the time of the assassination was about the most famous um, thespian in the country, called the American Hamlet. And um, when I was doing research for the story, one of the things I read was you you have to imagine. Um, that it was as if the president were assassinated and you were told that Brad Pitt's younger brother had done it. Um, how shocked you would be. So I've added a few ghosts, but otherwise, um, I, I always hesitate to say it's true, um, uh, that it's all true, but it is all stuff that I got out of the nonfiction part of the library. <laughs> so I can't attest to its truthiness, but I did not, I myself did not make it up. It's in four parts to help you pace yourselves. When you hear part four, you will know you are all, we are almost to the end and you will indeed someday see your spouse and children again, which Tim Powers tells me there's always a point in every reading when you doubt that. <laughs> Booth's Ghost, one. I have that within which passeth show, which is from Hamlet. 
On November 25, 1864, Edwin Booth gave a benefit benefit performance of Julius Caesar. One night only in the Winter Garden Theater in New York City, all profits to fund the raising of a statue of Shakespeare in Central Park. Edwin played the role of Brutus. His older brother, Junius, was Cassius. His younger, John Wilkes, was Mark Antony. The best seats went for as much as $5, and their mother and sister, Asia, were in the audience flushed with pride. Act two, scene one, Brutus's Orchard. Fire engines could be heard outside the theater, and four firemen came into the lobby. The audience began to buzz and shift in their seats. Brutus stepped forward into the footlights. Everything is all right, he told them. Please stay as you are. The play continued. People used to say that Edwin owned the East Coast, Junius the West, and John Wilkes the South, but on this occasion, the applause was mostly for John. Asia overheard a Southerner in the audience. Our booth is like a young god, the man said. From the newspaper the next morning, they learned that the fires near the theater had been set by Southern rebels. Had they been in California, Junius said, the arsonists would have been strung up without a trial. He was for that. Edwin was for the Union. He told them that a few days earlier, he'd voted for the first time. He voted for Lincoln's reelection. John dissolved in rage. Edwin would see Lincoln become a king, John shouted, and have no one to blame but himself. Their mother intervened. No more talk of politics. The next night, the Winter Garden Theater saw the debut of Hamlet with Edwin in the title role. The play ran for two weeks, three, eight, ten, until Edwin felt the exhaustion of playing the same part night after night. He begged for a change, but the play was still selling out. This run, which would last 100 nights, was the making of Edwin's name. Ever after, he would be America's Hamlet. It was more than a calling, almost a cult. Edwin referred to this as my terrible success. It was a shame Shakespeare couldn't see him, the critics wrote. He was so exactly what Hamlet ought to be, so exactly what Shakespeare had envisioned. One morning, his little daughter Edwina was offered an omelet. That's my daddy, she said. There came a night when, deadened from the long run, Edwin began to miss his cues. He had the curtain brought down, retired to his dressing room to gather himself. Oh God, oh God, he said to himself, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seems to me all the uses of this world. When the ghost appeared, Edwin was not surprised. He'd been born with a call, which meant protection, but also the ability to see spirits. Almost a year earlier, his beloved young wife had died of tuberculosis. She'd been in Boston, he in New York. He was Hamlet then, too, a week's worth of performances, and often drunk when on stage. Fatigued, one of the critics said, but others were not so kind. The night she died, he'd felt her kiss him. I am half frozen, she'd said. He'd stopped drinking and begun to spend his money on seances. Initially, he'd gotten good value. His wife sent many messages of love and encouragement. Her words were general, though, impersonal, and lately he'd been having doubts. He'd begun to host seances himself with no professional medium in attendance. A friend described one such evening. He was seized, this friend said, by a powerful electricity, and his hands began to shake faster and harder than mortal man could move. He was given pen and paper, which he soon covered in ink. But when he came back to his senses, he'd written no words, only scrawl. It had all been Edwin, he decided then, doing what Edwin did best. 
Night after night on the stage, Edwin made people believe. The ghost visiting Edwin now was about the height of a tall woman or a short man. It wore a helmet, but unlike the ghost in Hamlet, its visor was lowered so its face could not be seen. Its armor was torn and insubstantial, half chainmail, half cobweb. It stood wrapped in a blue-green light, shaking its arms. There was an icy wind, a sound like the dragging of chains. Edwin knew who it was. His father's acting had always been the full-throated sort. Why are you here? Edwin asked. Why are you here? His father's ghost asked back. His tone reverberated with ghostly disappointment. It was a tone Edwin knew well. You have an audience in their seats. The papers will put it down to drink. More arm shaking, more dragging of chains. Edwin pulled himself together and returned to the stage. Two, the serpent that did sting my father's life now wears his crown. Drink in the theater ran heavy in Edwin's blood. His father, Junius Brutus Booth, was famous for both. Born in England, Junius had come to America in 1821 on a ship named the Two Brothers. He brought with him his mistress and child. He left a wife and child behind. Junius Brutus Booth leased a property in northern Baltimore, remote acreage of farmland and forest. When he wasn't touring, he and his family lived in isolation in a small cabin. He refused to own slaves, forbid his family to eat meat or fish or to kill any animal. When he inadvertently injured a copperhead with the plow, he brought it home, kept it on the hearth in a box padded with a blanket until it recovered. Edwin's earliest memory was of returning to the farm after dark on the back of a horse. As they passed through the forest toward home, his night terror grew. There were branches that grabbed for him, the screaming of owls. The horses came to a halt. His father dismounted, swung Edwin down and across the fence. Your foot is on your native heath, boy, his father said. And Edwin never forgot the overwhelming sense of belonging, of safety, of home that washed through him. He was not his father's favorite child, nor his mother's either. The favorite was Henry until he died, and then it was John Wilkes. Four of the Booth children passed before adulthood. They were all older than Edwin or would have been had they lived. These deaths drove their father into an intermittent raving madness. In later years, Junius Booth was much admired for his King Lear. Mm -hmm. Surviving from the oldest set were Rosalie and Junius Jr. Edwin was the eldest of the younger set, followed by Asia, John Wilkes, and Joseph. The youngest three in particular were very close. All but Edwin were well-educated. At the age of 13, Edwin had been taken permanently out of school to go on the road with his father. His job was to see that Junius showed up for performances and to keep him out of taverns. It was a job no one could do with complete success. The most difficult time was after the curtain. This seems to have been the rule that Junius would not drink if Edwin was watching. Some nights, Edwin managed to lock his father in his room. On one of these occasions, Junius bribed the innkeeper and drank mint juleps with a straw through the keyhole. <laughs> More often, Junius would insist on going out, Edwin trailing silently, close enough to watch his father, but far enough behind to escape invective. His father's goal on these evenings was to give him the slip. Then Edwin would be forced to search through a midnight landscape of deserted streets for the one tavern his father was in. He received little affection and no gratitude for this. When found, Junius would curse at Edwin, shout, 
threatened to see him shanghaied into the Navy if he didn't go away. One afternoon, his father woke up from a nap and refused to go the, to the theater. He was scheduled to play Richard III. You do it, he told Edwin. I'm sick of it. Lacking an alternative, the manager sent Edwin on stage in his father's hump, his father's outsized costume. No warning had been given the audience, whose applause fell away into a puzzled silence. Edwin began tentatively. He tried to imitate his father's inflections, his gestures. The actors nearest him provided every possible support, while those offstage crowded the wings, watching in friendly, nervous sympathy. The audience, too, found themselves filled with pity for the young boy, so obviously out of his depth, drowning in his own sleeves. He'd had them on the edge of their seats, wondering if he'd get through his next line, his next scene. The play ended with Edwin's first ovation. He had won it merely by surviving. Junius Jr., Edwin's oldest brother, relocated to San Francisco where he ran a theater company. In 1852, he talked his father into coming west on tour. No one imagined Junius Sr. could make the trip alone. Junius Jr. traveled east to pick his father up. Edwin, now 18 years old, was to be at long last left at home. The party had tickets on a steamer leaving from New York and traveling around the Cape. As soon as he arrived in the city, Junius the Elder and an actor friend, George Spear, shook Junius the Younger loose and went off on a toot. The boat sailed without them. Clearly, Junius Jr. was not up to the task. While they waited for the next boat, Edwin was fetched up from Baltimore. I'm gonna skip a little bit here. Um, they get to California, Edwin turned 19 and celebrated his freedom from responsibility by him his own words, drinking and whoring, often in the very taverns his father had frequented until his older brother had had enough. Oh, I see in the part that I skipped, his, his father goes back home. Sorry, that was more important than I realized. Um, Edwin then joined a company touring the mining camps. He played in Nevada City, Yuba City, Grass Valley, in Downeyville, the company was caught in a tremendous blizzard. They made their slow way back over the snowy roads to Nevada City. It was night. Edwin was wandering drunk and alone along the main street in the bright moonlit snow when he saw his father coming toward him. He wore no costume, but was dressed as himself in a stained coat and shabby hat. Edwin stopped to wait for him. Cut off even in the blossoms of, of my sin, his father said. A bobbing lantern shone through his body. I'm sick to the heart of it. You do it now. The light grew brighter as his father dimmed until he finally vanished completely. The man holding the lantern was George Spear. I've come to fetch you, boy, George said. A letter following behind them had finally caught up. On the last leg of his voyage back, Junius Brutus Booth had drunk a glass of water from the Mississippi River that made him so ill he died within days. He'd never reached home, and his final hours had been filled with torment. In spite of the raving and drunkenness, the Booth children had adored their father. Edwin believed Junius had secretly come to watch on that night he'd stood in as Richard III, although there was no evidence to support this. Edwin believed he'd caused his father's death by choosing not to see him safely home. Three, oh horrible, oh horrible, most horrible. In February of 1865, Junius Jr. traveled to Washington, D.C. to see John Wilkes. Junius had always admired his younger brother, but now found him hysterical and unhinged on the subject of the Richmond campaign. 
The mother wrote to John that she was miserable and lonely visiting Edwin in his Boston house. I always gave you praise, she wrote, for being the fondest of all my boys, but since you leave me to grief, I must doubt it. I am no Roman mother. I love my dear ones before country or anything else. She went back to her home in New York where she lived with Rosalie, her oldest daughter. On the night of April 14, 1865, Edwin Booth was in Boston playing the villain in a melodrama called The Iron Chest to a sold-out house. The Civil War had just ended. The city was celebrating. Edwin Booth was 31 years old and engaged to be married again. Some of his audience on the way home from the theater heard that the president had been shot, and some of those dismissed this as idle rumor. Edwin knew nothing until the newspaper arrived the next morning. When he saw his brother's name in print, Edwin wrote later to a friend, he felt he'd been struck on the head with a hammer. Soon a message arrived from the manager of the Boston Theater. Although he prayed, the note said, that what everyone was saying about Wilkes would yet prove untrue, he thought it best and right to cancel all further performances. Edwin's daughter Edwina was visiting her Aunt Asia in Philadelphia. Asia read the news in the paper and collapsed. While her husband was trying to calm her, a U.S. Marshal arrived, forbid them to leave the house, and put a guard at every door. Junius Jr. was on tour in Cincinnati. When he entered his hotel lobby for breakfast, the clerk immediately sent him back upstairs. Moments later, a mob of some 500 people arrived. They had stripped the lampposts of Junius's playbills and come to hang him. His life was saved by the hotel clerk, who convinced the mob that Junius had gone in the night and the staff who hid him in an attic room until the danger had passed. I'm going to skip a little more here. Um, Junius Jr. is arrested and charged with conspiracy, uh, although there is absolutely no evidence to support that. Asia's husband is also arrested. It's not clear how Edwin escaped the conspiracy charges. He'd once saved Lincoln's son from a train accident. He was known as a union man. He had powerful friends who exerted themselves. He'd been born with a cow. Somehow he stayed out of jail. Still, he couldn't leave his house. The streets were too dangerous. His daughter returned from her aunt's under police escort. His fiancee broke off their engagement by letter. More letters arrived, hundreds of them, to all members of the Booth family. They came for months. They came for years. I am carrying a bullet for you. Your life is forfeit. We hate the very name Booth. Your next performance will be a tragedy. Four, if it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. In the months that followed, Edwin could only leave the house at night. He walked for miles through the dark Boston streets, his hat pulled over his face. During the day, he hid in the house writing letters of his own. He'd worked so hard to make the name of Booth respectable, he wrote. He repeated often the story of how he had once saved the life of Robert Lincoln on a train. He was forced to Washington during the trial of the co-conspirators. The defense had planned to call him to attest to John Wilkes' insanity and also to the charismatic power he held over the minds of others. The lawyers interviewed Edwin for several hours and then decided not to put him on the stand. While he was in the Capitol, he visited his brother and brother-in-law, still in jail. His brother-in-law repeated his plans to divorce Asia. He wondered aloud at Edwin's freedom. Those who have passed through such an ordeal, Asia wrote, if there are any such, never relearn to trust in human nature. They never resume their old place in the world, and they forget only in death. Edwin thought he might go mad. 
He swore that he would never act again. It would be grotesque for any booth to perform anywhere. The rest must be silence. Nine months passed. Louis Payne, George Atzerott, David Harold, and Mary Surratt were hanged as co-conspirators in the prison yard before a large and enthusiastic crowd. Junius Booth and John Sleeper Clark were released. Though he never forgave her, Asia's husband did not ask for a divorce. Instead, they retreated to England, where they lived for the rest of their lives. The bills mounted, the creditors pressed. I don't know what will become of us, his mother wrote to Edwin. I don't see how we'll survive. His mother, like his father, did not believe in subtlety. In January 1866, the Winter Garden Theater in New York announced Edwin's return to the stage. Will it be Julius Caesar, an outraged newspaper asked. Will he perhaps, as would be fitting, play the assassin? He would be playing Hamlet. Long before the performance, every ticket had sold. There would be such a crush as the Winter Garden had never seen before. On the night of the performance, some without tickets forced their way in as far as the lobby. The play began. From his dressing room, Edwin Booth knew when the ghost had made his entrance. Marcellus, peace, break thee off, look where it comes again, and then Bernardo, in the same figure like the king who's dead. Edwin couldn't actually hear the words. He recognized the lines from their stress and inflections. He knew the moment of them. He knew exactly how much time remained until he took his place for the second act, for the second scene. Edwin leaned into the mirror to stare past his own painted face into the space behind him. On the wall to the right of the small dressing table mirror was a coat rack, so overwhelmed with hats and capes that it loomed over the room, casting the shadow of a very large man. A knock at the door. His father's old friend, George Spear, had come to beg Edwin to reconsider. What is out there, he said, what is waiting for you, is not an audience so much as a mob. Yet Edwin couldn't hear them at all. It seemed they sat in a complete, uncanny silence. I am carrying a bullet for you. Your life is forfeit. No one in his family had dared to come. His daughter Edwina was at his mother's house. He imagined her descending the stairs in her nightgown to give her grandmother a kiss. He imagined her ascending again. He imagined her safe in bed. He was called to take his place on stage for the second scene, but could not make his legs move. We hate the very name Booth. Your next performance will be a tragedy. Now he could hear the audience stamping their feet, impatient at the delay. He waited for his father's ghost to arrive, asked why he kept an audience waiting in their seats. But there was only the stage manager knocking a second time, calling with some agitation, Mr. Booth, Mr. Booth. What did it mean that his father had not come? I'm ready, Edwin said, and having said so, he could rise. He left the dressing room and took his place on stage. The actors around him were stiff with tension. One of the hallmarks of Edwin's Hamlet was that he made no entrance. As the curtain opened on the second scene, it often took the audience time to locate him among the busy Danish court. He sat unobtrusively off to one side under the standard of the great raven of Denmark, his head bowed. Among a gaudy court, a critic had written of an earlier performance, he alone with them alone, easily prints and nullifying their effect by the intensity and color of his gloom. On this particular night, he seemed a frail figure, slight and dark and unremarkable, save for the intensity and color of his gloom. 
The audience found him in his chair. There sat their American Hamlet. Someone began to clap and then someone else. The audience came to their feet. The next day's review in the spirit of the times reported nine cheers, then six, then three, then nine more. The play could not continue. And as they clapped, many of them, men and women both, began to weep. Edwin stood and came forward into the footlights. He bowed very low and then he couldn't straighten, but continued to sink. Someone caught him from behind just before he fell. There, boy, his father said, unseen, a whisper in Edwin's ear as he was lifted to his feet. When he stood again upright, the audience saw that Edwin too was weeping. It made them cheer him again. His fellow actors gathered tightly in, clapping their hands. His father's arms were wrapped around him. Edwin smelled his father's pipe and beyond at the forest, the fireplace of his childhood home. There, boy, there, boy, his father said. Your foot is on your native heath. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.